Uh, let's ask God to help us as we come now to his word. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word you caused the Apostle Paul uh, to write. Our Father, we uh, thank you uh, for his confidence in the faithfulness of our Lord Jesus and that he can say that he looks forward at the end of his race to the crown of righteousness. Uh, we pray in your mercy that you will give us that same confidence in our Lord. And gracious Father, we also pray that you would give us understanding from your word of the life and character of those who would teach it and of the congregation we should be to receive it. Please help me now to speak your word truthfully and clearly and let us all know uh, that work in our hearts that your word is promised to do, to help us trust Jesus for eternal life and through its teaching, rebuke, correction and training, equip us for every good work. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, tonight's passage, 2 Timothy 4, 1 to 8, is often preached at ordinations and licensings. That's where we authorise someone after their gifts have been recognised and they've been trained and tested to preach the gospel in a congregation. Uh, I've taught this passage in those contexts and having heard Paul's charge to Timothy, you might think that that is where it is best suited. But the teaching of this passage shouldn't be confined to that context or applied only to those embarking on full-time ministry. This is a passage for us all. It's not just that amongst us here tonight, there may be some the Lord is calling to ministry whom he wants to engage through this word with what is involved in fulfilling that calling. Now, this is for all of us because we go through the Christian life together. To be saved is also to be brought into God's family, to be joined to a Christian community. We are pilgrims together, travelling towards our goal, the heavenly Jerusalem. Or to use Paul's images, every believer is engaged in the same fight, is running in the same race. And our perseverance in our journey, our steadfastness in our fight, our coming to the end of our race well, is either helped or hindered by the Christian community we belong to. It helps if we are part of a faithful, encouraging, loving as Jesus has loved us community, a community that spurs one another on to run well. And we'll be hindered in our race or maybe even fall by the wayside if we're part of a community where truth is obscured sin-tolerated, lovelessness and cold formalism take root. But to be a faithful community, you need faithful pastors. On the one hand, those to whom you entrust the authority to teach among you can have a big role in sustaining the health of a congregation as followers of Jesus by keeping the gospel of Jesus, the word of God, central to our common life. And on the other hand, Christian communities are often like the proverbial fish, rotting from the head up, 
where the minister starts substituting other words for the rule of the word of Christ in his own or the congregation's life, unhealthy decay soon sets in. Having a faithful pastor is important for running the race well. But faithful pastors are also helped and encouraged by faithful congregations. Their work is facilitated, encouraged by those who respond to and in turn encourage faithful teaching. Good congregations need good pastors and good pastors need good congregations. So we all have a role to play and an interest in being the congregation that can help us persevere in our journey, endure in the fight, run our race to the end. And that's why 2 Timothy 4, 1 to 8 is for us all. It gives us the description of the work of the good pastor, the pastor you want to get and have, either here or in whatever congregation you may be in in the future. And it also shows us the congregation you should want to be if you want to sustain faithful ministry by describing what you must not be like. And it does all this as it reminds us that the goal of our race, the crown of righteousness, is for all who run to the end. So let's look at the kind of pastor you want to get. Or if you are ever called to the work of pastoring a congregation, the kind of pastor you must be. I solemnly charge you, says Paul, before God and in Christ Jesus, who is going to judge the living and the dead, and because of his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word, be urgent, be ready in season and out of season, correct, rebuke and encourage with great patience and teaching. Paul's charge to Timothy is very solemn calling God and the Lord Jesus to witness what Paul is entrusting to Timothy, the work of preaching the gospel. The seriousness of this charge is emphasised by reminding Timothy that the Lord Jesus, who is a witness to this commissioning, is the judge of the living and the dead, the one who will hold Timothy and all of us to account. And the Lord Jesus, we're reminded, is not some formal fictional witness invoked in a parroted phrase. He is living and almighty, the one who will appear, who will be revealed from heaven at the close of the age and establish God's eternal kingdom. Preaching the word is serious. And you want as a pastor someone who is serious, who knows that they will give account for every word they speak, for every action for the way they themselves obey the Lord Jesus. Give account to the one who sees and knows all and who's never fooled. Someone who is serious because they know what they do matters to our God and Saviour, matters for eternity. Now, serious is unfashionable. Uh, Have you noticed how increasingly commentary and guidance on life in Australia is given by comedians. We look to comedians to review the week for us. Oh, to comedians to help us detect fake news and information. We want people who will give us insight with a laugh, not get you down by taking things too seriously. 
We prefer, well, light. How bad news, sugar-coated. But you want a pastor, as a pastor, someone who is fully convinced of the significance of what they're doing, preaching the gospel of God for which they'll be accountable to the living Lord. Someone who's not cynical as if it doesn't really matter because nothing really matters. Someone who's not casual, doing, you know, as if what they're doing doesn't deserve everything they have. Someone who's not a hypocrite, a play actor, but instead someone with, the integ- with integrity who knows their life is open to God, God who sees all. You see, you want that person for conscious of judgment and the coming eternal kingdom. They will bring home to you the seriousness of how you are responding to God's word. They'll bring home to you the seriousness of your sin that can exclude you from God's reign. Oh, the seriousness of holding fast to Jesus and not drifting from him, for no one else will save you. Look for seriousness. Someone who still trembles at God's word. And look for someone whose ministry is centred on that word who will preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, correct, rebuke and encourage with great patience and teaching. Here you have a picture of what a word-centred ministry looks like. Firstly, they preach the word. And that's more than being animated in a pulpit, for which I personally am very thankful. Uh, Paul had declared himself to be, in 111, appointed by God to be a herald. Now, the Greek word there for herald is kerux. And here Paul uses the related verb, caruso. Timothy is to herald, proclaim the word. And that word is the word of the gospel, the word that of God that is unbound, the power of God to save. And so when you're looking for a pastor, you look for someone who knows that their central task is making known God's word, that they're entrusted by God with a proclamation for the whole world, that the gospel word is an announcement, a message from God whose content is given by God. And so entrusted by God with that gospel, the faithful pastor knows he's a steward and that what's required is not novelty but faithfulness and clarity in delivering the message God has sent out into the world. And it is God's word. God breathed, as Paul has just said at the end of chapter 3. So they should be bold in making it known, clear, on its authority, confident of its effectiveness. In that word, God commands that we repent and believe. So the faithful preacher shouldn't speak the gospel as if they're giving lifestyle advice which people can take or leave. They shouldn't speak as if they're just there to give you tips about how you're to live a better life and it doesn't matter whether you respond or not. They're giving you the command of God, which will bring you into a relationship with the eternal and living God. And, of course, the faithful pastor 
is to be always ready with that word, in season and out of season, if it's convenient or inconvenient, opportune or inopportune, whenever he can, whether he thinks the circumstances are favourable or not, he is to be ready to make the gospel known. And as he preaches, he's to apply the word to the circumstances of his hearers, correct, rebuke and encourage. If someone's thinking or understanding or behaviour falls short, they're to help them improve by correcting them, pointing out the problem and showing them the better understanding, the better way to live. If someone's willfully embracing error or wanting to keep on sinning, they should rebuke, tell them it must stop if they're to go on with Christ, as Paul often does, say 1 Corinthians 6 or Ephesians 5. If someone is weary or worn down, they must encourage, like a good doctor. The faithful preacher doesn't use one medicine for every condition. They match their treatment to the individual's condition, their application of scripture to the circumstances of their hearers. And all their dealings are to be characterised by patience and teaching. Patience. While expecting change and growth in response to the word, they recognise that takes time. They accept in others the frailty they know in themselves. That people, believers, can be forgetful or preoccupied or defensive. Oh, that believers can slip back into long-held habits of thinking and acting, even when committed to thinking and acting differently. Oh, that believers can know moments of weakness in loneliness or weariness or anger. And they know it's not one slip and then you're out. It's not immediate conformity or endure angry rejection. No, it has to be the patience of grace that when it meets failure, turns to the Lord's promise and says, confess, be forgiven and go on. The patience of being able to point them to a patient, forgiving, yet powerful saviour. The patience that looks looks and gives time for the new life of the Spirit to grow to maturity in every one of God's people. All they do is to be characterised by patience and by teaching the truth of Scripture. That's what our Lord commanded when he sent the apostles out to the nations that they're to teach his disciples all that he has commanded. You see, it's through teaching people grow in godliness. Teaching is... What, for example, Paul models in his dealings with the Corinthians. You know, he doesn't resort there to the exercise of naked authority, say, I'm an apostle, do what I say. No, he addresses the issues he meets there by patient explanation of the cross, 1 Corinthians 1 following, persuading them to change thinking and behaviour by helping them understand better what it means to be saved by a crucified saviour saved by grace. And that's always the way, with teaching. People grow in faith through being taught the gospel, for through the gospel they grow in knowledge of our Lord Jesus and realise how loving and mighty he is, how worthy of our trust, and they grow in knowledge of his will. Christ's people need to hear Christ's word for conviction of Christ's will. And it cannot come by coercion or manipulation, only by teaching.
So look for someone who pastors with an open Bible, whether it's opened in memory or in a book, who takes every opportunity to teach. Who should you get? Who should you want so that you can stay healthy together in your race? Someone whose ministry is word-centred, who proclaims the gospel as God's message to the world, who knows they are stewards of that message and are always ready in any circumstance to speak of Jesus. Someone who can apply that word to your individual circumstances and who in everything shows patience and teaches so that change and growth come through understanding and conviction of the truth of the word of Jesus. And the good pastor needs to be diligent, seizing the time they have for times when people are receptive to sound teaching can be quickly lost. Time will come when people will not tolerate sound doctrine. They know that while they can, they must teach the truth. And whatever the reception they receive, they must have the character and conviction that will allow them to fulfil their ministry, verse 5. But as for you, exercise self-control in everything, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfil your ministry. This is the kind of person you should be looking for and trying to be yourself. Someone who's self-controlled in everything. The sense, as one commentator put it, is that Timothy and every pastor is to be free from every form of mental and spiritual drunkenness. So look for a pastor who's free from excess, free from being ruled by his passions, who's not rash or confused, someone who won't lose their head when facing opposition, who's not panicked by fear or provoked to anger. Oh, and look for someone who won't be intoxicated by success, who won't vainly think that success is because of them and not the power of God's word. And in that vain thinking, focus people on themselves and not on Christ. You want someone always connected to, grounded in reality, that Christ is Lord and we're all his servants and that he is the one who saves and we are sinners saved by his grace and that it is God who gives the growth and all the glory is his. Look for someone who will exercise self-control, keep their head in all circumstances and look for someone willing to endure suffering. I mean, this is where Paul started, remember, encouraging Timothy to endure suffering for the gospel, relying on the power of God. And Paul has shown in the letter that suffering can come in all forms, from those outside the church who violently oppose the gospel as Paul encountered in Antioch, Iconium and Lystra, from being caught up in the hard times of the last days caused by sinful humanity, or from those inside the church, chapter 2, who oppose the gospel, who frustrate, who abandon. That suffering, you see, can be physical and emotional, imprisonment and beating, but also the suffering of grief and abandonment, of being misrepresented and opposed. The good pastor endures with the strength God supplies and does not give up preaching and teaching the word of God, which he knows is powerful in his weakness.
and he'll keep on with the work of an evangelist. He'll seek Jesus' sheep with Jesus' word, Jesus' gospel. You see, this tells you you want a pastor who will always keep the main things, the main things, sin and judgment and salvation through faith in Christ alone, the Christ who is Lord of all and who will return in glory, a pastor who will never tire of calling people to repentance and to put their faith in the Lord Jesus and keeps that at the heart of their ministry a pastor who will fulfil their ministry, who will remain focused on the service entrusted to them. They won't see this work as a hobby or a job where they can clock on and clock off, but they'll know it's a calling, a calling from their Lord Jesus, a ministry entrusted to them. And so they won't withdraw from it and give their time and thinking to other things. They'll be people of one loyalty, living to hear the commendation of their master who has entrusted this ministry to them. When you come to call a pastor, the pastor Paul describes here is the pastor you want to get. When you move church, if you do, and I'm not encouraging that, but one day you might move to, you know, Northern Territory and not be able to get to church, but, you know, if you move church, This is the kind of pastor you should want to sit under. And this is the kind of pastor you should be praying your pastors will be for your good. But good pastors to persevere need good congregations. So how can we be a good congregation? What are we to look for in ourselves? Well, says St Paul, the time will come when people will not tolerate sound doctrine but according to their own desires will multiply teachers for themselves because they have an itch to hear what they want to hear. They'll turn away from hearing the truth and will turn aside to myths. Here we learn what we should be by seeing what we should not be. Rather than be people who cannot tolerate sound doctrine, We have to be people who welcome and delight in sound doctrine, the health-giving, wholesome teaching of the scripture read in the light of the gospel. Every believer who can should be reading that word for themselves and seeking to grow in understanding, becoming people who are convinced of its goodness by conforming their lives to its truth. And when we come to church, every believer should come expecting that word to be taught, not to hear opinions or practical tips for a better life, but to learn of God from God through his word. Not coming for exciting experiences or occasional revelation, but to have the God-breathed word do its work in our lives. And delighting in the word also means being willing to accept its application to our lives in correction, rebuke and encouragement, that where this is administered with an open Bible, we are glad for it. Welcoming the application of God's word to our lives will encourage its practice by your pastors and that will be good for you. Though it can be hard to hear, it's actually life-saving to have sin 
our sexual immorality or our greed or our thoughtless pride rebuked. Life-saving to have our errors corrected, our spirits sustained by a word of encouragement. And we do that. We welcome the word. We accept rebuke, correction, encouragement because as believers in Jesus, we remember whose church it is. It's not our church, but Jesus' church, which he builds and rules through his word. And we remember what is at stake in abiding by his truth, eternal life, being reckoned righteous on the day of our Lord's appearing. The congregation is to be, the congregation to be is the congregation that welcomes the word of God and the congregation that resists the temptation to make ourselves, our desires and preferences central. Uh, You and I, we live in a consumer society where the constant message is that our desires and preferences are to be satisfied, that we have a right to have our tastes catered to, that the custom is always right and where that's not recognised, well, they should go elsewhere. And many live in an online world where the search algorithm takes you only to those sites that echo your opinions and reinforce your views. And it's so easy to bring that culturally conditioned expectation that we should only hear what we want to hear to church, to our hearing from the Bible. So easy to expect that when we meet, our opinions should be reinforced, not challenged, our interests catered to. And we can start to look for teachers who will do that for us, who will tell us what we want to hear. And it's easy to accumulate them, isn't it? Search the net and you can get a list of your favourite teachers who will satisfy your curiosity, who will tell you what you want to hear, who will give you the sense that you are so special by listening to them and you now have these special insights. It's true, isn't it? Want to be healthy and wealthy and let's face it, who doesn't? Well, you'll find preachers who'll tell you that you're entitled to that and how you can get that health and wealth you desire. Oh, and those who aren't, (coughs) he says, coughing. Well, that's because of their lack of faith. Want your greed tolerated or your sexual immorality endorsed? You'll find preachers to help you be comfortable with that. Or maybe it's politics. Well, you'll find preachers who'll speak to your concern for personal responsibility and reinforce your suspicion of government. Or, alternatively, you'll find those who'll feed your concern for social justice as the outworking of the Christian life. Do you want your privileges endorsed and your rights championed? There are preachers for that. Are you curious about the future, about the content of the end times, the exact meaning of prophecies? Well, you'll find Preachers who'll satisfy your desire and soon all you are listening to are detailed explanations of obscure verses finding fulfilment in another time and not in the Lord Jesus. You can find them and you can accumulate them on the net, on the conference circuit, in the library. And sometimes it's actually not content people demand but style. We all have preferences and different learning styles But some people make them absolute, whether it's length or illustrations or stories, and refuse to listen 
to those who don't conform to their stylistic preferences, often unaware of how culturally conditioned they are. And in all of these situations, whether it's content or style, we've made the test of whether we'll listen or not, we've made the test us. What we want, what we prefer. But when this happens, inevitably, there will be drift. People will turn away from the truth and turn aside to myths. When you just want to hear an echo of yourself from the pulpit, when you set yourself up as the judge of what should be said and how it should be said, well, you'll mistake the part for the whole and neglect other things God has said about, say, suffering and sickness or the dangers of wanting to be rich. And your God will become a fiction of your own making constrained within the limits of your desires and preferences. There's no health there. Just like you can't live on air, you can't thrive on myths. To be a good congregation, a congregation that can help each other run the race to the end, we have to keep welcoming the word in all it says, however it comes, and from whoever speaks it. Welcome the word and resist the temptation to make ourselves the test of what can be said and how it can be said. Oh, yes, we should test what's said by the word of God, but not make our own desires the test of what the word of God can say. How are you going with that? Are you content with opening the word and working through it to hear what God has to say to you in his word. Do you know one of the reasons for our regular diet of systematic expository preaching through the Bible, of not focusing on topical preaching, is to keep what God is saying central. Not what I want to say to you, not what you might want to hear, but what God has said. And what in revealing himself in his word He tells us he wants his people to hear. Know the pastor you should get. Know the congregation you should be. And together we need to look to and long for the end of the race. For I am already, writes Paul, being poured out as a drink offering and the time of my departure has come. In verse 6 we see actually no we feel, don't we? What lies behind the seriousness and the urgency of Paul's charge to Timothy? Paul is going. He knows he will soon depart this earth, rescued by his Lord through death, through his anticipated execution, rescued to our Lord's heavenly kingdom. He speaks of his death as a drink offering. A drink offering was the pouring out of some wine that accompanied sacrifice in the temple, accompanied, for example, the daily sacrifices in the temple. A drink offering wasn't atoning, but it was worship acceptable to God, holy, a sacrifice that accompanied the atoning sacrifice of Christ, purposeful and pleasing to God. You see, Paul shows us that for Christ's servants, death is departure, departure to a better place, not the end, and it can be purposeful not the destruction of all meaning. 
And as he contemplates his death, Paul can say, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. He has come to the end. It's important, isn't it, to remember that, that there is an end to our race. Life is not interminable. Sooner or later, the fight finishes, the noble struggle to love and follow Jesus in this life, the contest with the world, the flesh and the devil concludes. The race ends. And that is important for all of us to remember because sometimes our struggle, whether it's with sin or our circumstances, can seem unending and we fear for our strength. Sometimes the course stretching out beyond the the course seems to stretch out beyond the horizon, beyond our sight, and we fear for our endurance. But there is an end. And won't it be good then to say by God's grace, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Good because there is a prize for those who finish the race. There is reserved for me, writes Paul, the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day, not only to me, but to all those who have loved his appearing. Paul looks forward to the crown of righteousness, which the Lord will give him on that day, the final day, the day of judgment. He looks forward confidently, for the Lord is the righteous judge the one who never fails in his commitments. And this crown is righteousness. It's the crown which is righteousness. The prize is being reckoned righteous on the last day. Someone who is justified in God's sight by faith in the crucified and risen Jesus. And what a prize that is. You see, to be righteous is, as Luther said, to have heaven's door open. To be righteous on the last day is to enjoy peace with the almighty and holy God. It's to be assured of rising with Christ in bodies that are incorruptible, glorious and mighty, when God will wipe every tear from our eye. It's to be able to drink from the river of life in the new Jerusalem and to see our God's face. There is nothing better than receiving the crown of righteousness at the last day. And it is certain for the Lord, Paul's Lord, the one whose faith he has kept, is the judge on that day. And notice Paul says this crown is not just for him, but it's for all who have loved our Lord's appearing. Now with loved, you might think Paul is talking about an appearing in the past, Christ's first coming but appearing in its other uses in Paul, speaks of the Lord's coming in glory. It's the same appearing that Paul spoke of in verse 1. This is our Lord's appearing at the last day. And and loved here is, is not speaking of something that's only in the past. No, the sense is all who have started loving and keep on loving his appearing. All who love his appearing, all who long for his appearing, as we know the Apostle Paul did. Listen to him in 1 Corinthians. If anyone does not love the Lord, a curse be on him. Our Lord, come. 
In fact, all New Testament believers long for that appearing. Here, the end of Scripture, the end of Revelation, both the Spirit and the Bride say, come. He who testifies about these things says, yes, I'm coming soon. And the verse continues, amen, come, Lord Jesus. Believers long for his appearing and they long for it because they love the Lord Jesus, our Lord Jesus. They've been captivated by his love, his goodness, his truth, his compassion. They want his reign of justice and righteousness. We want him to come. That this crown of righteousness is for all tells you this prize is by grace. You might think that when Paul spoke of his prize, he was speaking of something deserved by his outstanding achievement. But he speaks of himself knowing himself to be the worst of sinners. (laughs) This is a true saying. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners and I am the worst of them. And he speaks as someone who knows that all he's done is being by God's grace. I'm the least of the apostles, not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. The crown of righteousness is the prize graciously given to all who persevere in their race, in their trust in Jesus to the end. But think of what it is to love, what it is to long now for the appearing of our Lord Jesus. It means your hopes are not focused on this life, that you're not living for longing for what you can achieve or get in this life, your life now directed by your own plans and dreams. No, it's to live a life that's focused now on pleasing Jesus so that you hear then what you long to hear. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. To long for Jesus appearing is to live a life like Paul's that in the end makes no sense unless Jesus is coming back. Is that you? Would somebody look at your life and say, oh, here is someone who loves the Lord Jesus, who longs for his appearing, who can see that in the choices that you make, the goals you have. Well, every believer is in the same race as Paul, engaged in the same noble struggle. We run, run to the end to receive that crown on the day of our Lord's appearing. A dreadful day, but a day every believer longs for as a bride longs for the day of her wedding. We'll be helped along the way, each one of us, sustained in our race by good pastors. So know what to look for. Someone who will faithfully teach God's word, who will rebuke, correct and encourage, who will be examples of faithful suffering and focused service of our Lord. On those pastors and each other, well, we'll be helped if all of us make our congregation good.
also know what it is to be a good congregation, one that welcomes the word. Good congregations need good pastors and good pastors need good congregations. For some of you, 2 Timothy 4 may be an opportunity if God has give, to consider if God has given you the character and gifts that would fit you to be a good pastor to preach the word. Think about it because congregations need pastors. For those of us already engaged in the ministry of preaching, 2 Timothy 4 is an opportunity to test our hearts and practice against what God calls for and to seek his mercy and grace and help to be faithful and diligent. And for all of us, 2 Timothy 4 is an opportunity to ask if we are a good congregation, faithful to the word of Christ so that we keep welcoming the word year after year, praying for and encouraging faithful ministry, accepting <laughs> that rebuke, correction, encouragement that comes from God's word and will keep us healthy and running well, running well together so that at the end, each of us will finish well and can say, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. You can say that with confidence in our Lord Jesus and confidently look forward to the crown of righteousness which he will give to all who have loved his appearing. Make sure that's you. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, in your great mercy, make us people who love your word, who delight in its truth, and meeting our Lord Jesus in his gospel, clothed in his promises, and coming to know his love for us and what that gospel proclaims is death for our sins and rising again. Make us people who long for his appearing now and who are confident in him of that crown of righteousness then. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.